0: Welcome to the Political Pharmacist Podcast, the first podcast to focus on the political side of pharmacy. Here's your host, Eric Geyer. Welcome, Political Pharmacist Podcast listeners. I'm your host, Eric Geyer, and with me today, I have Dr. Grant Harding. He is a pharmacist and now author, or he was the author of How to Escape Retail Pharmacy Hell. So, welcome to the podcast, Dr. Harding. Hey, thanks for having me. No, hey, the pleasure's all mine. You basically wrote a book that was what a lot of people have been thinking retail pharmacy has been for a long time especially with the large chains so i think it's a it's a great topic to talk about a political pharmacist podcast so tell us a little bit about yourself
1: i saw myself growing from someone who wanted to just kind of follow rules and collect paychecks into someone who wanted to be more in charge of my career and my destiny i felt like i was becoming the proverbial cog in the machine and i absolutely hated the people running the machine. And quite frankly, um, I began to lose our customers as well, which is really, really disappointing. The very people who I so desperately wanted to help would turn on me in a moment's notice the minute their insurance stopped paying for something or they lost their medication. I remember the final straw for me was a lady who really caused the scene in the pharmacy one day, accused us of not giving her her medication even after the technician literally showed her her signature. And whenever she saw her signature, she said, that couldn't be me because it's not at my house. What? She also, yeah, I don't know. (laughs) She also accused me of letting her leave the pharmacy without her medications on a separate example, uh, said her neighbor hates me. Why are they talking about me? I shouldn't be someone that neighbors should be talking about, I don't think. Her Lenzest was $8 when Tim was working, but it was 300 when I was working, and that was my fault. Tim was my pharmacy partner at the time. Um, and I, I believed her, and I tried to console her, you know, be good customer service and everything like that. And I went and checked, and specifically about this Lenzest ordeal, I wasn't even working that day. She made that up completely. Yeah. And if that's how we're gonna be treated by the very people we wanna help, I'm outie. I'm, I'm not de- putting up with it anymore. And that was probably the moment where I started what ended up being about a six month journey of me learning everything I could about how pharmacists were hired and applying to every job that I could get my eyes on. I was determined to do whatever it took to get out. And after I finally did get out, I, I landed what I now know to be my dream job. I didn't even know it at the time. I couldn't breathe in a room without other pharmacists asking me how I did it. it was like, so how'd you get out of retail? What are you doing now? You know? And I loved talking to him about it, and I loved offering advice, and I'd talk all day and all night uh, about it. And at some point I realized that I could help a lot more people if I just put down everything into words and distribute it as a book. Um, So one night I found my views, and I stayed up till like four or five in the morning for a week straight until I had it done. The whole book only took about a week to write, and it took another week to uh, get the cover and proofread and edited and everything. So it was about two weeks in total, and um, I've been trying to help as many pharmacists as I can ever since.
0: That's awesome, and you know, I think I think a lot of it does depend on who your management is where you work. But I think that that's a great story for many people out there who, if they feel like they're in the same situation you were, yeah, absolutely. What made you write it?
1: So that's a great question. Just like many of my retail pharmacy brethren, I came out of school thinking that retail pharmacy couldn't be that bad. Uh, let's face it, we have a lot of loans to pay back, and retail pharmacy pays the best. I graduated in 2017, and over the next three years, I began to hate my life more and more. I mean, it, it started off slow, but towards the end of the, my retail pharmacy stint, I was—I—I I didn't care if I made it to work or back home at the end of the day. Like it was getting so bad and taxing on my mental and physical well-being and emotionally. And I don't mind saying that here on the podcast because I know I'm not the only one who's ever felt that way. I know that for a fact because I have people blowing up my DMs with the exact same notion. People tell me that they can't go on any longer, literally crying. And if anyone's listening and you're feeling that way because of your retail pharmacy job, please reach out to me. Reach out to a mentor or somebody else. I love helping you guys the best I can. And I definitely do get called upon to be an emotional support for a lot of retail pharmacists. You guys should see what my Facebook Messenger and Twitter DMs look like. And um, it, it's really shocking. And it's it's really depressing to think that this is so common in any profession, but especially one that, that should be as well respected as pharmacist, my goodness I never thought that this would happen whenever I signed up for pharmacy school back in 2016 2017
0: yeah and I'll, um, t- I'll tell you what the it's it's crazy how that happens and for listeners I'm kind of I'll, I'll announce my some of the changes I made recently but I did leave the company I was working for for about five a little over five years and it's it's absolutely crazy the way that some of these things in retail have changed since and I graduated in 2009 so I've been out for a little over 12 years now and I mean, I don't want to say it's night and day, but it's definitely different phases of the moon, if you will, for how, for how much it's changed. And it's crazy that you know you said pharmacists and retail were like the highest paid. And around my area, that's no longer the case. We're seeing pay rates fall pretty substantially. In fact, I know um, Walgreens was paying around $44 an hour and having a hard time even hiring people because that rate was so low given the student loan debts, everything you have to do with the pandemic, the demands of the job when Uh, Some of the chains across the street were paying more and upwards of seven, eight dollars an hour more, which was actually still less than what some of the hospitals were paying. So we're seeing that fall off a cliff in large part due to some of the other issues and payment structures that are in pharmacy. But I think that's pretty interesting that, you know, that's kind of me and you have a similar way to start this. And now we here we are at different stages of our life or our career. We're at the same point. Is that kind of the way you're seeing that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I didn't know wages were that low in your area. They were still pretty high whenever I left. But I mean, all, all the more reason to get out, I guess.
0: Yeah. So we wanted to really kind of dive into here, some of the, the main issues when it comes to retail or community pharmacy here. And we kind of each made a list of some of what our top three is. So what do you think is kind of like your number one issue there, Grant, that you wanted to kind of bring up to fix or help, you know, discuss retail pharmacy?
1: So in my book, I actually identified eight issues. Part of my book is a step-by-step guide on how to actually get out of retail pharmacy, And another part is just us as pharmacists communicating and talking about the things that we are so disgruntled about. Probably the main one that I identified in my book is, I don't believe the support staff that we have as pharmacists in the retail setting are paid enough. They're not paid enough to care enough. And quite frankly, their job is very difficult. I think being a pharmacy technician, making only $9 an hour, and putting up with some of the things they do, I mean, that does not make financial sense to me, and we can see evidence of that. I mean, how many times do you hire a pharmacy technician and they're gone the next week? It it doesn't – like anyone would not – anybody who knows what they need financially would not stick around for that deal. You are recently at a retail. Do you know what you guys were paying your techs at the time?
0: You know, I think we have a little more flexibility now, but I know that I'm pretty sure if I remember correctly, you couldn't start them over 13 or 13, an hour, but that kind of made, was made flexible because of the COVID staffing issues. And before that it was 11, an hour. In fact, I've interviewed technicians before who were trying to make a switch over from literally fast food at Wendy's. And when I told them what the pay, pay rate was, they told me what they were getting paid. And I was just kind of like shake their hand and be like, look, I can't touch that. I'll, I'll see you. you know, better yeah. luck somewhere else. And that's Really, to your point there, it's, it's pretty bad. It's a little more than what you were saying. We're in different areas, so the pay structure could be different. But either way, you know, 11, 12 bucks an hour really isn't enough for the amount of work and the, the importance of the work that you're doing. I agree.
1: Yeah, it was about nine dollars when I started that we were paying tax, and it was about twelve by the time I left. We got a new CEO somewhere in between there, and uh, the pay went up. But I, I, yeah, like I agree with you. I still don't feel like it's enough. Uh, there, there's a lot of responsibility in this profession. A lot of area where things can go wrong, and I any I would not care at all if I was making such terrible low wages showing up to work every day i mean there's just you you're not paying me enough to care at that point and that's not really fair to the pharmacist who has fines uh, possibly restrictions to the license or even losing their license on the line
0: yeah no yeah. I, I totally agree with you that and i think part of that and kind of hopping into some of my points here was one of the issues we have is we have a lack of pharmacist and leadership across every retail chain i've seen I know CVS had a, a pharmacist as their CEO, and then they've switched that obviously to uh, someone who is not a pharmacist. But in almost all the chains I've seen, the people who are overseeing and managing the pharmacist or the pharmacy managers, they're not pharmacists. And so, like, you know, they're missing that legal knowledge, that clinical knowledge, knowing kind of what it's like to have someone's life's in your hands when you're having to make a decision on something and hoping that, you know, maybe there's a QT prolongation question that pops up all the time now. Maybe there's something like that you have to make a call on when you're looking at a profile. And it's kind of a gray area, to be honest with you. It's not always black and white when you're looking at some of that stuff. And they just don't understand that. And so, you know, they don't really, I don't think they know what that is when you're, what you have to deal with every day when you're looking at that stuff. And they're just like, cut staffing, you can do this quicker, go through the DURs faster, things like that. And I know in my area, they've even. Some of the people who weren't pharmacists hired people from abroad who were coming from Syria and Serbia to kind of come work in the stores. And not only were there language barriers, but they didn't know any of the laws or even know half the clinical stuff. Some of the drugs names they didn't even know because it was a different country. Have you ever seen that one? No, I
1: haven't. I worked in a very rural town. Most of the folks, myself included, were born and raised there. We did not get a whole lot of international pharmacists.
0: Gotcha. But, yeah, you had a few more issues, too, that you were talking about here. You want to elaborate on those? Sure,
1: yeah, so additionally drug prices they're just made up numbers. I've decided. Uh, there's no rhyme or reason other than pharmacy or uh, pharmaceutical companies will just charge whatever they think they can extort a third part party payer for, and that headache trickles down from them to the pharmacist and on to the customer and the patient. I, I don't know how many times i've I've been in this situation where, Some, you know, brand name insulin gets lost. And of course, that's our fault for some reason. Uh, That's the pharmacist's (laughs) fault. And what do you do there? You you can't give them a $300 insulin pen. The insurance isn't going to pay for anything. I mean, sometimes they will, but let's face it, that's a lot of headache and it's not going to be timely. But in my experience, they normally don't pay for a replacement for something like that. I mean, I guess you really, your really only option is they could pay cash or switch the product. And that's not, some, that's not a situation that we should be in. We shouldn't have to fight fake numbers for patient care. And, and that's just my opinion. And then whenever you throw in you know, wholesale acquisition costs, average wholesale price, my goodness, does anyone know what the price of a drug is anymore? <laughs> I mean, I guess some in, independent pharmacies could probably nail it down to a you know, within a couple cents here and there. There's not enough transparency for us to do our job correctly. I don't believe so.
0: Well, and to your point too, you mentioned some of the easy ones. And even if you pay for the drug, you get the sale, six months later, you might get with a DIR fee or something else. And now what you thought was a price completely changed on what you actually got paid for it. So there's Like you said, it's such a moving target. Who knows if even a year from now it's actually going to be settled as to what the price of that drug was, which I can't think of anything else in America that is priced that way. So that's just one of those insane parts to me that retail and community pharmacists have to deal with. It kind of goes into what you were talking about with me just a second ago is you were talking about drug prices being made up. Look at how many times that in retail, I know you had to deal with this too, that metrics are kind of being pushed over actual patient care or spending time with people, right? Like, it'll be like, how quick did you answer the phone? Or how quick did this go through? Did you complete this many calls? When really, it shouldn't be about the number of calls. It should be about the quality of the calls. Like, right, if you were actually having time to make good interactions with them, not, all right, are you taking it? Do you have any questions? Bye. And that's a whole other thing that gets made up in the metrics and in the reimbursement scheme. And I'm sure you had to deal with that where you worked.
1: Oh, absolutely. Uh, I would say if most days we just felt like telemarketers, we didn't feel like pharmacists, (laughs)
0: You know, I have I said that one time to a DM and they didn't like the way that I phrased that, but I don't think they argued with it very much either. <laughs> there was a couple other things that we wanted to hit on here, but you had talked about some of the laws that don't really make a lot of sense. Can you give some examples of that?
1: Oh my goodness, I could write a book on this. <laughs> Maybe that's um, your second book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it could be. So uh, some of my favorites are In Pennsylvania, we had um, limits to what nursing midwives could prescribe Um, as far as C2s are concerned. I believe it was a 72-hour supply, I believe. But I live very close to the Maryland border. I have no idea what their laws are there. Women would go to Maryland for care and then bring back a prescription that would be more than the 72-hour supply of a Schedule II drug written by a nursing midwife. What do you do there? Do you knock it down to 72 hours? Do you honor the prescription in full? Do you have to deny it outright? What all can we change on a C2 prescription? All of these things are um, not clarified in the Pennsylvania Pharmacy Code. And if you ask for clarification, they'll ignore you. There's like no back and forth, no communication It doesn't feel like anyway um, from pharmacists and the pharmacy board. Some pharmacists may be scared or afraid or have angst to do certain things because they don't want to get a fine because they don't know what the board is going to, if they're going to give out any sort of penalty or not. There's just so much uncertainty and I don't like how that, that cloud of uncertainty kind of follows around our profession. I could go on and on. Do you, do you know what the um, day supply limit for an emergency verbal C2 prescription is? at least in Pennsylvania, I don't, I would assume it's the same in Ohio. I believe it's federal, you know, off the top of
0: your head. I think it's 72 hours as long as you get the prescription back. But it's one of those things that with COVID it became this complete like Plinko system of if this, it moves here and this, it moves here. So honestly, it's a good call out there. I can't give you a hundred percent positive. I'm certain answer.
1: I know outside of COVID, because you're right, that that complicates things. And maybe that's the only excusable complication that we have our laws at this time. But in Pennsylvania, there is no limit. As Hmm. long as the emergency lasts, which could be a year, it could (laughs) be a week. That's completely legal. They could call in a verbal emergency C2 prescription for a year if the person's going to leave on a plane tomorrow and be gone for a year. That was a uh, that's a common test question we see sometimes uh, when folks are preparing for their MPJE.
0: That's kind of ridiculous, in my opinion, in so many ways, because I, that's, that's one I haven't really... I've had it come up, and I'll be honest with you, too, and it's not just me. I, I'm probably a little more liberal with kind of trying to take care of people than some other p- pharmacists I know are, but it tends to be something, like you said, we go super conservative on, because so many times, it's not the pharmacy or the higher-ups they get in trouble for that and not making it clear, it comes back to us. Like, you know, we lose the pharmacist's license, not the pharmacy's license. And so that's a whole other talking point there. But I think that's a that's a great call-out when you're talking about some of the things being confusing. So now I don't want to make this all negative and beating up on stuff. I want to try and make some solutions here. So I'll share what I think is a good one, and then we'll kind of go back to you and we'll bounce these off each other a little bit. But some solutions I see to this are, making a pharmacist the only person who is allowed to manage pharmacists. So if you have someone who's like a district manager who has to oversee pharmacy managers, they have to be a licensed pharmacist in that state and legally responsible for any errors that happen under them as well since they have direct management and staffing responsibilities. What do you think of that, and what are some other reasons or other ideas you have for fixing this?
1: Oh, I love it. We need to keep pharmacists in the profession, not keep them out of it. Like It makes no sense to me to have somebody... Who has never set foot in a pharmacy in their life try to tell a pharmacist how to take care of their patients. Yeah. <laughs> I, I couldn't say that better. The only thing that maybe I wouldn't be too happy about would be if I was a pharmacy manager and I was 100% responsible of what another pharmacist did. But I, w- I would totally see that there would be a, at least some amount of responsibility. Because yeah. at the end of the day, they're at their own autonomous professional. But we definitely need more pharmacists having skin in the game. Like it, it just makes no sense to me to have someone else try to tell us how to do our job.
0: Yeah, and you had a lot of good ideas too when we were kind of spitballing before this. So what are what are a couple of your ideas that would help fix some of these situations and maybe if there's a story with them?
1: Sure. So my number one thing being the, the help, the support staff that we have being underpaid. So I'd I'd like to see them paid more. I mean, if you go from the pharmacist up, shaving a couple of dollars off the rate, and I'm talking like DMs and S or whatever your company calls it, district yeah. regional managers, all the way up to the top, my goodness, you could easily fund this. I would think so. And even I myself, I would be willing to take a couple of dollar hit if that meant that the staff was going to come to work every every day and care and that they were being paid enough that they didn't actually want to lose their job because I feel like there's a lot of apathy sometimes with pharmacy technicians and even pharmacists, by the way. Uh, I know that's kind of, it's difficult to hear, oh my gosh, you would take a pay cut, like what's wrong with you? But believe me, um, $50 an hour if you have no debt is tr- enough, more than enough. You could retire early and have a house and a family.
0: No debt is a key um, there, but yes.
1: <laughs> exactly, yeah. Maybe an even larger part that I didn't even touch on is how do we make pharmacy school affordable? And we're kind of in a surplus right now, but for the folks that who are out and do have debt, like myself, you kind of owe it to yourself and your profession in some ways to become debt-free or at least nearly debt-free. I don't mind saying this. I had $290,000 in debt when I graduated. Wow. That was in 2017, yeah and me and my wife are making very good progress. We'll actually be debt-free by the end of next year. That's a present. I haven't heard, yeah, I haven't heard, heard of anyone uh, paying off that much amount of debt in that amount of time, at least on a pharmacist's salary. But anyway, yeah, it felt great to where I was at debt- at the point where I really didn't have these massive monthly loan payment burdens and I could sort of tell my retail pharmacist job that I was gonna leave yeah. <laughs> because I didn't need them anymore. You know, uh, if they're not being, if they're not your sole provider of your income and you can't get that anywhere else, then they can't really tell you
0: what to do. You know, it's it's funny you mentioned that because I actually think we see that a lot with the technicians. I know where I work, uh, if a technician got really upset with a pharmacist who was staffing a store, sometimes they would just ghost them, completely leave. And, you know, they didn't have any debt. You know, they were in already on Medicaid because they were paid so low. So they had their their healthcare taken care of and that they just were like, bye, you know, they were like, I don't need to deal with this. If I have all of my other stuff already kind of met because I'm being paid so little, I'm already getting some of the assistance and you could talk about corporate welfare, but we're not going to go into that right now. But you know, and so many times you can't even afford a fire attack who is terrible because you will then just be ultimately screwing yourself in the back end. Because you have no one to backfill their shoes or it's going to take you six weeks plus training to even get someone on boarded. It. And it's really just a mess, which is why you really want to take care of your people. And like you said, if you have to pay them a couple bucks more, but you don't have to have the turnover and the headaches and the lose people because of the long lines and the customer service issues. To me, that just that pays for itself. Like, why are we fighting this? It just seems like the dumbest fight from a business sense.
1: Yeah, it doesn't make sense to me.
0: The other thing that we had kind of mentioned with some of this was obviously another idea I had was. Possibly making the pharmacy manager the person who has to own the pharmacy by law. I believe it's North Dakota. It could be South Dakota. I always get them confused. What the Dakotas, one of them has a state law that the pharmacy manager must own 50.1% of the pharmacy or be the majority owner. And I think that that's a huge thing because now they are allowed to make the business decisions they they feel. That way they can take care of their people the best way. And that would solve a lot of the issues too because you know, you know could the chains would essentially be like a franchise of some sort and the pharmacist might own the pharmacy and the chain might own the front of the store. But you have a way then of the pharmacist truly owning the profession and truly owning what happens in there. And nobody can necessarily come in and say, you're doing this wrong, cutting hours, cutting this, and then leaving them in a state where they could hurt patients.
1: Absolutely. It's funny that you mentioned the Dakotas. I always get them confused as well. I think they might have some of the best pharmacy laws the, one of them, them has a rule where you can't have a chain pharmacy in there in, in the state. I think that's great as
0: well. So what was your what was your next idea to help kind of fix some of these issues?
1: I'd like to see pharmacists more involved in drug selection, specifically dosage forms. We all see, you know, the person working in the doctor's office just fix the first thing that they see in their EMR under levothyroxine or... <laughs> uh, or to Xanadine or whatever. We get a prescription for something dumb, but we don't have the time or the means to reach out to the doctors, so we bill the insurance, and if it's paid for, we order it for the next day, and that's that. That's very wasteful. We could be utilized as a profession so much better to help reduce those healthcare costs. When drug companies wanna play games with their, air quotes, unique dosage form that they charge an arm and a leg for, like do excess and like things of that nature, we can put our foot down and say, no, this is dumb. Nobody should be paying for this, especially this person's insurance or if they don't have insurance, that person. This is something that I do now in my current job. I, I got a call from a nurse one time that was dead set on moxifloxis and eye drops for someone. There was no reason for it. I, I contacted their pharmacy and we got it switched to Cipro So that's a difference of probably $550 right there. This is probably the most value I think that pharmacists can provide because we're the only profession that's educated on this. I don't know a nurse or a doctor or anyone who could tell me the differences between uh, bupropion formulations or Depakote or, uh, I don't know, any random cream that doesn't make sense. You know, They don't know the differences between these things. We're the only ones who do, and we need to be utilized to help uh, make better financial decisions, I think.
0: You know, in some states, like in Ohio, I am allowed to switch within certain things as long as like, they're A-B rated and according to Orange Book. But when you start talking that gray area and like true def- uh, professional discretion, that's where it can get kind of like, well, you know, I can be really held liable or in trouble when I made what probably anyone would make for a normal call. And you hit right on it with in there. The capsules are hundreds of dollars for no reason, and they're not AB rated, but if you can find anyone who can tell me what the percent difference is and if it actually means a difference with that versus the tablets, which are absolutely pennies, then they obviously know a lot more than me or you probably do, but it's one of those things that really doesn't make that much of a difference, and okay, maybe you try if the other one failed, but like, why would you pay hundreds of dollars more for something every single time this person needs a prescription, just because like you said, capsules was alphabetically ahead of tablets in their EMR when they clicked it and the doctor didn't realize, because they rarely realize that, to be honest with you.
1: Oh, they, they never do. They, they don't know. They, they're yeah. not trained on it. They're not supposed to know. That's not really part of their thing, I don't think. True. Uh, maybe a couple of them pick up, you know, little tidbits here and there about pricing throughout their career, but that's not a part of their formal training. Uh, Insulins is another one. We we yep. technically cannot substitute basiglar and Atlantis and things like that, at least not yet. I hear that legislature is changing, but we'll see what happens with that. But uh, you kind of touched on, you know, whenever you start making these substitutions, are you gonna be held liable if, you know, God forbid something happens? I don't know. That would take a whole reworking of our pharmacy codes across the country, and unfortunately, I don't think that'll probably ever happen. But it would be nice if we could be treated sort of, you know, somewhere like a uh, a mid-level practitioner or something like that, that we could sort of work with prescribers to select uh, appropriate drugs and dosage forms.
0: Yeah, and personally, that's what I think providers to needs to pass so we can have that, I don't want to say autonomy, but that ability to make changes get compensated for the service we provided and then help everybody kind of win across the board. Right? Like if someone has to go a week without their insulin, their blood sugar gets run up and they go in the ER versus paying us. I'm just throwing a number out, 25, 50 bucks, for making a professional decision, switching it from to Atlantis or, you know, whichever it is, or even generic one and then sending them on their way. That's a huge, like that's a huge difference in their life for a very small amount of a payment. And so I don't see why something like that couldn't just kind of be put right into, into law and it currently is there and APHA and all the organizations are supporting it. So hopefully it's, that'll get through Congress and the Senate sometime in the short, in the near future.
1: Uh, yeah, that's a great point. And that actually leads into my third way to, to help retail pharmacy. I said it before and I'll say it again, state boards of pharmacy or medicine or whatever, any professional sort of organization needs to pretty much be run by themselves. I don't tell electricians how to do their jobs. I don't want politicians telling us how to do ours. Trust me, we're going to know what's best. And if if we had nearly complete pharmacist rule, I guess, over how we were governed, these things that we're talking about would be, I mean, they'd be done in an instant. Yep. You couldn't find a pharmacist that would disagree with some of the things we're saying here right now.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's a that's a great way of looking at it too. Um, kind of, you know, obviously, besides just burnout and like the things we're talking about, and like, kind of, I don't want to say harp down, but I've discussed at length here. What are some of the other issues that you've seen when it comes to just the profession, like, especially recently with COVID and things like that?
1: So one of the things um, I don't get a whole lot of support on this one. Um, but I, I think it is very important. I think vaccine demand is way too high. And it's too important this isn't really something especially now with COVID that you can really screw around with making it like a a a money a cash cow kind of thing that you can milk like these vaccines need to be given and they need to be given in a timely manner and it's incredibly unfair that that task of vaccinating specifically with COVID was put on pharmacists at least to begin with I did see that there were some texts in some states that were able to vaccinate that should have been what our business model was from the beginning. I don't know who decided that the pharmacists were the ones that had to do all the immunizing back in two thousand or whenever your state allowed that. But that should have always been a tech responsibility in my opinion. And they should have been paid more because of it. You know, yeah. circling back to my
0: first point. When, you know what's funny about that is and I'll just call it from what I've seen in my recent experiences, they did offer what like they were kinda of behind they had to train the technicians to get there. Right. But I believe the technicians only had to go through like six hours of training. Whereas the pharmacist had to go through 20 to give the vaccines, which already I'm going, why are we cutting corners with something like this? When I have to go through more and I'm already more educated than the technician and not to knock the technicians, but just they we should be apples and apples here, not apples and oranges. And to that point too, yes, they should be paid more to do that. And we've seen states like Idaho where they're able to do that, and they've been doing it for a while. Alex Adams led that charge out there, and I graduated with them, so I've been kind of following that one for a little bit. But the other thing, to your point, too, is some of these chains paid pharmacists more. But I have heard where CVS did come out and say, we'll pay you for each shot you give, but didn't really announce it until afterwards. And it wasn't documented, so these people missed out on just hundreds, if not thousands of dollars, how many vaccines they gave. And then I know at some of the other chains like Walgreens, they threw out a thousand dollar bonus, but techs are really hesitant because, well, once COVID, they did not want to be in close contact with people, but they threw out a thousand dollar bonus, which is equal to a 50 cent pay raise for one year. We're literally fighting over pennies here is what you offer. I'm like, sure, it's a thousand dollars. It sounds like a lot of money, but when you look at it, it was a one-time bonus and there wasn't like a permanent pay bump for doing that, even though you can now use them to do that in perpetuity once they're trained for the remainder of at least COVID and possibly more depending on what law states pass. And I think that kind of goes back to your earlier point of support staff. Why are they treated so poorly, not just by pharmacists, some pharmacists are bad, but I think most of us do respect them, but by the higher ups, they're just treated like they're disposable, literally like fast food workers. And I think that's a, a huge issue. And you know, it's, Uh, it always kind of was interesting to me that people can walk right up to us and talk to us and we're one of the only if not the only healthcare professional that happens to in our daily workplace setting not just out in the streets when people know us that's doesn't fit our mold anymore
1: yeah absolutely i just wanted to touch on one thing there i think i would imagine i'm just guessing here the technician training was quicker because i i don't think a technician should be using clinical knowledge to determine which vaccines a person needs and to keep it safe and stuff. All they need to know how to do is to put the needle in the arm. Definitely still need a pharmacist there to supervise them. I do yes. not think that uh, technicians should ever be taking care of both aspects of the vaccine administration on their own. Definitely need a pharmacist there, yeah. vaccine schedules and allergies and stuff like that. But yes, you, you said another thing, which is something else that I I commonly gripe about, where else can someone just walk into your office and start talking to you or ask you where the bathroom is whenever <laughs> you're trying to work? Like, I I love the idea of being accessible and being helpful to patients and customers. But what I would love even more is if we had enough staff to actually do that instead of just cramming, you know, pharmacists with questions whenever they're trying to um, potentially counsel somebody else or fill prescriptions or give vaccines. I, I really don't like that. I, I think that kind of 1940s mentality needs to sort of maybe dissipate a little bit either that or or get more staffing but we know that'll never happen
0: it's funny too because you mentioned like we're living in the 1940s like soda fountain age if you will of people can walk right up and be you know boy howdy with us when i start talking which i, I really don't mind that a whole lot but it can get annoying when you've got people almost slave driving metrics at you and like just forcing you to hit other things and they're like, well, how come people aren't happy when they come in your store? You're like, maybe because I'm never off the phone because I'm making phone calls. Like, how is this one of those things you don't understand? Like, why is this, why is this so complicated when you walk in, you see me on the phone, like they see the same thing, you know, like that just, that always blows my mind. So, but Hey, before we get going too far on, on some of these gripes and things like that, I do want to make sure people can find you. So where are some ways that they can find you as far as like the book and reach out to you if they do want to find you,
1: oh great! So there's quite a few different ways. On Facebook, I have a page where I myself and other pharmacists—the intention is to help each other, you know, with interview questions or maybe just even showing job listings to each other and to help and support. And I'm very active in that group, and you can reach me there. Uh, it's called Escaping Retail Pharmacy. You just have to search for it on Facebook. Additionally, my official author profile is at Grant Harting on Facebook, uh, Twitter at Grant underscore Harding, and Instagram, Grant Harding with a space between the two words there. Uh, and I'm, I'm always open for DMs or questions, honestly. I'm, I'm, my biggest priority is you, the reader and the listener, or even if you didn't, haven't even bought the book, I don't really care. My, my goal is to help as many pharmacists as I can. Please reach out to me, even if it's just like an emotional thing, like we talked about earlier. Um, I'm definitely here for you guys.
0: Yeah, and for listeners too, the ebook is five dollars ninety nine cents, and the paperback is sixteen ninety nine. So these aren't terribly expensive, and it should be a good read. And if nothing else, it could be a little cathartic for those of us who are, who were in retail. So I think that's something that could maybe commiserate a little bit with you here. And obviously, I can't let you go before I ask you the two questions that I ask everybody who comes on the podcast. So if you could change one thing about pharmacy that wasn't a law, like the culture of pharmacy, what would it be and why?
1: I would say we need our autonomy back. I, I, I use this term probably incorrectly, but I feel like we get Stockholm syndrome a little bit into doing whatever our business expert DM says, you know, we're shackled by loans uh, and we, we sort of kind of get, I I struggle to say this because there's much more serious uh, situations where this term could be used, but we kind of get a little bit mentally abused in a way. And it's really unsafe for us as a profession to be held uh, to these metrics and to this incredibly large imbalance of power uh, for our profession. And In my opinion, this all starts with personal finance. If you don't have debt, you can do whatever you want. Whenever they tell you to make 10 phone calls for a Tdap vaccine. I mean, I I guess if you have the time, you could do that. But if you realistically don't, um, that could be your last time you ever speak to that DM. Um, I seriously doubt there'd be any tuition changes, honestly. No politician, Uh, not even Joe Biden, is going to bring anything but make false hope, I feel like. But you can be in charge of your debt and myself as well to ourselves and our profession to become debt free or at least nearly debt free to where we can't be basically bullied into doing things that don't make sense for us as a profession.
0: Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree that they the being debt free or having your own self kind of your own house taken care of makes a big difference. I know there's a lot of pharmacists that I've seen that have come through where I worked previously and they are just like running they're like, hey, I'm just doing this till I can find a better job that pays as much or more and I got loans to pay. And, I mean, I even was working with a pharmacist who was from Puerto Rico, came to Ohio, and that was her exact statement was, I'm out of here as soon as I can afford to keep paying my student loans. And it wasn't even about, Mm -hmm. like, traveling or food or anything like that. She's like, no, I'm just here because this is what keeps paying my bills right now. As soon as I find something else that's equivalent or better, I'm out. And I was like... That is not the way community pharmacy should be like community pharmacy. In my mind, right. you're, you're doing part of God's work. You're, you're out there, you're answering questions. You're trying to help people. Like you're really like the face of healthcare for so many people. Cause they see you so often. Why are we put in a situation like this? It's just, it's, it's mind boggling. All right. So the second question I ask everybody, if you can change one law in pharmacy, federal or state, or even add a law, so take away a law, what would it be? And why? we
1: pretty much touched on this already, same or similar substitution I think would be a great start. We don't really have any leeway as pharmacists. We talked about Lantus versus Blazy- Bazeglar, uh, I talked about Moxifloxacin and Cipro eye drops. We are the product experts, so let's be in charge of product selection. Oh, the, here's a new one that I've been seeing recently. This. I think it's called Capsargo or testbargo. Um yeah. like Metoprolol ER capsules. Why? <laughs> Why does that exist? Like, come on. Th- these are things that, uh, that we could have so much value if we were allowed to just use what we know to help reduce healthcare costs
0: yeah no i couldn't agree with you anymore there i think that's that's spot on and for listeners uh, there will be a link to everything we talked about uh to find grant in the sh- in the show notes as well but i think that you really kind of summarized a lot of the issues community pharmacies facing there and obviously a lot of this does tie back to reimbursement and things like that but this, these are some other things and points you made that we do need to go out and personally own our profession i cannot state that enough mm-hmm. we need to go out there own it take charge don't be afraid to give pushback because quite frankly it's it's many cases needed. So, Hey, thanks for coming on the podcast grant. And I appreciate everything you do and the way you are truly trying to help pharmacists take back the profession.
1: Absolutely. And honestly, goodness, guys, the most important thing here is for me to help you guys. If you don't want to buy the book or if you don't have the finances for it, reach out to me. All you have to do is say, Hey, I'm interested in the book, but I don't want to buy it. I've given out a lot of free copies of this book. And I'm, I'm not going to stop anytime soon. So please, uh, I'm here for you guys. Reach out to me, anything you need.
0: Awesome. So hey, listeners, if you can share this, we, I think this is one of those things that might help a lot of people who are stuck in situations. So uh, that's why I brought Grant on here is because I really thought he was doing a good service. And it, I think in speaking with him, it really comes through. So as always, thanks for listening to the Political Pharmacist Podcast, your prescription for pharmacy and politics.